Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew, if you would, Matthew chapter 1. We are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for the most part today. As we look at the promise, the providence, and purpose in the Christmas story. And what we're going to look at is in the genealogy of Jesus. Let me ask you, how many here have ever done a genealogy uh, check, study, Ancestry.com, or one of the others? Okay. Were you, were you surprised about what you found for those? No? Some, some people can. I mean, and, and it's something that's actually normal. I, I've never done it. I've had some interest in the past, just not enough to really go forth and do it. But to find out where I came from, where my ancestors came from, what, what part of the world, and, and what is the different types of, of cultures and things my, my family have come through, or where, where did they even begin? Uh, I know that uh, for us in the Currington family, uh, my family spells Currington with one R. No one else really does, not too many people, but one R. And so that's, I guess, been a family fight throughout the ages because there are other people who spell their name with two R's. And to find out that, of course, it's British, and so in the original is two R's. And in the census, my aunt did a census. She went back to, do the, uh, to, to find out our genealogy as far back as she could, and she found out when they started to use one R. It was during the census when my dad was born. Up until all the other censuses, when they would write their names, they would write Currington. My grandparents did. But then when my dad was born, for some reason, they dropped one of the R's. And from then on, our name has been with one R. So surprising things you find when you do it. And it's something interesting to go back and, and see photocopies of their signatures and things of that nature. But you also got to be careful because sometimes you can find some surprising things out when you do your heritage, when you do your genealogy. You may think that you belong to one culture and find out you aren't, and you might be a senator. So you need to be very careful. Let those who have ears hear so you always got to be careful, but it's always fun to kind of do those things. And so today we're going to look at the promise, the providence, and purpose in the Christmas story as we look at the genealogy of Jesus. Imagine this. I know it's difficult for us to do, but imagine being a Jew, <clears throat> living far away from your homeland in Israel. You've been dispersed. You're, in, you're around the world. Your heart yearns for reconciliation. And all your life you've heard about the promises of Messiah, the, the anointed one, the snake crusher, as we've been saying in, in Sunday school, in which, in which one who's going to come and set things right. For centuries, you and your nation has suffered under the cruel and harsh rule of foreign kings. You recall the words of your grandfather and fathers and other elders recounting all the promises of God to rescue his children as he once did in Egypt with Moses. These yearnings are captured mournfully in the Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, where it writes, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the ransomed captive, uh, and ransomed captive Israel, excuse me, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Then only one day, word comes of a man who claims to be the Messiah. Now, there have been many men over the years, even in Jesus' time, who had done that. But here you are in the first century, and you hear words of a man who claims to be the Messiah. Your heart skips again with anticipation. 
Yet by the time the word reaches you, this man has been crucified. His disciples spread across the world with a mission to tell everyone about this man who they say risen from the grave, but yet he is no longer on earth. So you might ask some questions. Well, who is this Jesus? What did he do? What did he say? Where is he now? Is he the long-awaited Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel? Or is he just another has-been or want-to-be? Now, Matthew attempts to answer these questions, just as Luke gives us an orderly account that we've been studying. And Matthew's gospel begins his testimony with these words in chapter 1, verse 1. You see it. It's also here in the monitor if you need it. Where he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And with those words, he's going to introduce to his readers who the Messiah is. Now, we have to understand that the gospel of Matthew was written primarily to Jewish unbelievers to declare that Jesus is or was and is the Messiah and the rightful heir of the throne of David. And Matthew opens up his gospel by recording the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to be that Messiah through the importance of his name, his title, and his lineage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we just take a moment just to thank you for our children. Lord, you have blessed us, and I pray that you continue to do so. And we just thank you for these little ones, for they remind us that that's the humbleness, the the excitement, the anticipation that we would have for the things of you, the desire for you. I pray that you just be with us as we open up the book and we look at genealogies, uh, probably the things that we skip the most as we read scripture, but yet there's some important promises. We can see your providence, your hand working, and then the purposes of the Messiah and the redemption working through the genealogy, the genealogy of Matthew as we look this morning. Thank you for Matthew's gospel. I pray that you just encourage us as we read through and understand in your name we pray, amen. Now, in Jesus, we're going to say, as we ask, well, who is this Jesus? In Jesus, we're going to see the promise. Remember, we're looking at the promise, the providence, and the purpose. And in the genealogy, we're going to see the promise of Christ when we ask the question, who is this Jesus? Now, the first name, the name Jesus means to rescue or deliver. In scripture, it's defined as he will save. Now, this is seen in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20, 21. If you're following along, you can read these with me. In this passage, Joseph is commanded by the angel to embrace Mary as his wife, even though he's pregnant. You might remember that they were engaged in our terms, but yet she's still a virgin. And when he has to come or he finds out that his betrothed, his virgin, is, 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 um, is pregnant, he has this desire to put her away. He could have her stoned. But his desire here is just to kind of put her right privately in the engagement and then just go on his, on his way. But here we see that he has an angelic vis- vision where an angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So he is Jesus. He is one who will rescue, he'll deliver. In next, Matthew refers to Jesus as Christ. Looking back at verse 1. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. 
but it's a title that meant the anointed one. The psalmist uses that phrase to refer to King David, the anointed one, while the prophet Daniel refers to the anointed one who will come as a prince but be cut off, who will die. Scripture also uses to describe men that were given special responsibilities to serve the purposes of God. And the Apostle John refers, uses it to refer to Jesus in his first letter, 1 John. Christ was the title for the Messiah, the anointed one, who would come to rescue and deliver children, or deliver God's children. So all of a sudden, just in verse 1, we're seeing that Jesus, he is one who's going to rescue, deliver. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one that's been promised. And then he scribes Jesus as the son of David. Now, David had many sons, but this title refers to the promise that the son of David would reign on the throne forever. The promise is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord declares to, uh, declares to David that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are filled and you lie down, you die. I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. Now, you could imagine that every time that someone would come up and say, listen, as I make an announcement, the king has had a son. People would be excited. Is this the king? Is this the one? Now, sadly, I don't know if they said a girl, they probably said, oh, okay, oh, well. Uh, in those days, I don't even know if they may have announced it. But you get this thing, is, is this the anointed one? Is this the one that will be king? And Solomon seems to be that king, right? A unified Israel, the beauty of Solomon, the wisdom. However, Solomon really kind of dies there in disobedience to God in many ways. And then we see King Solomon's son, and then the kingdom divided, and the sons become more wicked and wicked in every generation. Is this the one? Only be disappointed. But Matthew points out that here is the son of David. Here is the one that we have been looking for. As Landon read earlier, Landon, the same prophet, also declared that, that the child would be born to us, a son given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. This is the one that Matthew is pointing out, the promise of God of 1 Samuel, given thousands of years before, is now coming true. Of course, we're here this morning to declare that this passage of that king of that child refers to Jesus Christ. He is the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the son of David. Yet Matthew is not finished here in Matthew chapter 1. You might have just read that verse as well and not seen all the impact on it. But not only is he Jesus, the one who delivered, not only is he the, the Christ, the anointed one, and the son of David, the king, but we also see that he declares that he's also the son of Abraham. Now, this promise is important. Abraham, as most of us are aware, is the father of the Hebrew children. He's their patriarch. He is the beginning of their line. His son Jacob will become father of his son Jacob will become the father of a nation of Israel, the twelve tribes, as you and I know. It was Abraham that was called out of his homeland while he was a pagan worshiper, a false worshiper, or a worshiper of false gods, to follow the one true Yahweh. In doing so, he was promised in Genesis chapter 12. And by the way, if you do not have this passage underlined in your Bible, you may want to turn to and do it. This is one of the major uh, promises found in Scripture. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. In other words, abandon it all. Leave your family, leave your occupation, leave your homeland, and go to a land you've never been. And I will make you of a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now remember, at this time, Abram and Sarah, his wife, have no children. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, and here's the important thing, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Hebrew children and families, but all the families in the world. The promise is repeated in Genesis 22, verses 15, when Abraham obeys God in offering up his son to Isaac, and we know that God provided a, a substitute. The angel of the Lord then said, called Abraham and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So when the Lord promises something, we can have trust that he will fulfill his promises. He says, because you have done this and you have shown your faith and not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashores. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nation of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, all the nations of the earth. The Apostle Paul would write that centuries later, that after this original promise to Abraham, and after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that Jesus was the one who fulfilled this promise. When, 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 when Paul writes, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, he says, who is Christ. So Matthew in that first sentence is putting down his thesis statement. For those of you who know what a thesis statement, it's, a, it's the first sentence or paragraph in, 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 a, in a dissertation or in a paper in which sets down your purpose of why you're writing. Matthew is heading, this is a, this is a headline. This is, this is the banner. Jesus is this person that has been promised to us. He is the son of God, the rescuer, deliverer. He, he, is the, he is the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the one in which is the ruler. And he's the one in which all nations will be blessed through him and by him. In one sentence, Matthew declares that Jesus comes from a very prominent and highly valued family. Matthew is declaring that Jesus is the anointed one of God who comes to rescue his people from their sins through the righteous rule of the throne of David, and will bless not only the Hebrew children, but his rule will be a blessing to all the world. He will be the prince and the peace and the counselor to all the world. Now, as you and I continue, that's the promise that we find there in the genealogy of Jesus, mainly in that first sentence. But as we continue on in that genealogy that we typically skip, is we also see the providence of Christmas, the providence of of Christmas, working its way through that genealogy. In that genealogy, you and I will find good, faithful men that served God and others that were wicked and evil. You'll see both in that genealogy. We find attentive fathers that raised their children to honor God, and then we also find others that failed to do so, and we see the result of that. 
We find kings that honor God by ruling righteously and justly, but we also find other kings who were a disgrace, ruling in wickedness. You read of the patriarchs of the Hebrew children, such as Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. We see great kings like Solomon, Asa, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. But we also see the wicked ones of Rehoboam, Joram, Ahaz, Manasseh, and Ammon. You find men that are strong and faithful like Boaz, Obed, and Jesse. But also those whose character and exploits are lost in time and not even recorded for us. But what is most interesting in Matthew's genealogy, record of Jesus' genealogy, is that Matthew's genealogy includes four women. Something unheard of in those days. And not just any woman, but four out of the four, three of them are Gentile women's, women, women's, women, while one of them was married to a Gentile. We see Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah. She pretended to be a prostitute after the death of her husband to sleep with her father-in-law and had twin sons, Perez and Zerah, by him. Perez, Tamar's offspring, the product of incest and harlotry and fornication and deception, would be immortalized forever as the lineage, as in the lineage of Jesus. Rahab, another woman, was a Gentile prostitute who hid the Israelites, spies in Jericho, and in the process, saving her whole family from the destruction of Jericho's great wall and the attack by Joshua. She would later marry one of the Israelite men. Ruth was a Moabite woman. She followed Naomi, her mother-in-law, to Israel after the death of her husband and married Boaz. Ruth was from the tribe of people who were a product of incest themselves. We talked about Lot last week. She comes from the family of Lot and one of his daughters. Their very existence was repugnant to the Jewish people. In Deuteronomy 23 is one of the laws that govern worship in Israel. It said, no Ammonite or Moab shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, they could not go into the tabernacle, into the temple. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Yet in grace and the providence of God, we see that the woman who could not go into the tabernacle, who could not go into the temple... He includes her in the promise and the providence of the Messiah. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, she's the, a woman who married a Gentile. Uriah the Hittite was a Gentile. She committed adultery with David, leading God to judge both David and the people of Israel. And after losing their son in infancy, she later gave birth to Solomon, who would build the temple of God and is known for his great wisdom. Each of these women is an object lesson about the working of divine grace as through the genealogy we see that God's providence is working even in the midst of sin and rebellion for his promise to come true. Their suffering was integral to the plan of God to send a redeemer. Even in the genealogy we see God's grace and mercy working its way through as well as his justice. Well, also from the genealogy of Matthew, we see the purpose of Christmas, the purpose of Christmas, why Christ was born. Number one, and I'm going to give you three of them. God was born flesh. God was born flesh. In Philippians 2, 6-8, you'll see it here on the monitor if you need it. It says that Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death to the cross. This is a promise that was given in Genesis 3.15 that an offspring of of Eve would one day become the snake crusher we've talked about in the past. And then through the genealogy, we see that each male was, would this be the one? But it's in Jesus Christ that we see that Jesus was not only born of a human, but he was God himself. And that's what we celebrate on Christmas is we're celebrating the incarnation. Matthew would write in chapter one, if you're still in Matthew chapter one, look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God will save or God with us. Jesus, by becoming flesh, was obedient to the Father, earning our righteousness. And though without sin, he became our substitute and bore the wrath of God on our behalf. The Apostle Paul writes that for our sake, God made Jesus, and I'm inserting for the pronouns there, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteous of God. In other words, God had to become flesh, be born into humanity so that he could bear the pain. Think of this. He had to become human. Someone this week uh, made made, made a, a great remark this week as I was reading is that Jesus had to have skin. He had to have become human to have skin for him to feel the marks on his back. He had to have a a brow so the thorns could be placed on him. He had to have a face so they could spit and strike him. He had to become human. He had to have hands and feet so they could be pierced by other humans. He had to become flesh. This is the purpose of Christmas. He became flesh so that he can endure what was rightly yours and mine. The writer of Hebrews would declare in chapter uh, 5, you see it here. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If he could not become human, then he could not have suffered and learned obedience through that suffering. In becoming flesh, God came and dwelled among his people once again rescuing them from a greater enemy than Pharaoh in Egypt, the curse of sin and death. Number two, we learn in the purpose of Christmas that God is faithful in keeping his promises. He breaks the cycle of sin. Jesus' birth was an important part of God's plan to redeem his children from the curse of sin and death. Since the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve, men and women uh, uh, of God have been looking forward to that great promise that the Messiah would bruise your head, speaking of Satan and the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. This yearning is reflected in the wonderful Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. But I want to share something, O Holy Night. I just learned this recently in the English version was written, rewritten. It's actually a, a French hymn by, by origin. In the English version, it was rewritten by a man who did not believe in the Trinity. 
He was a Unitarian, and he was an abolitionist during the time before the, before, uh, before the Civil War. And so he rewrote the hymn to talk about more about slavery. Hence, we see in the second part, and slaves shall be our brothers. All true. I'm not arguing that. But he changed the whole lyrics. May I, with your permission or without your permission, I'm going to read you what the first lyric is of whole, Oh Holy Night. Midnight Christians, it's the solemn hour. When God, man, descended to us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his father. The entire world thrills with hope. He kept that line. On this night, that gives it a savior. I can see why someone who rejects the Trinity would not want that to be sung. But that song captures the promises of God, of God's wrath being averted. And what a wonderful promise, what a wonderful purpose as we celebrate Christmas this year. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, I believe it's here on the monitor, that Jesus is the promise of God in the flesh. For he says, for what God has done, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, you and I could not do the Ten Commandments. We could not do 613. We definitely cannot do the Ten. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hence, we needed an alien righteousness. We needed someone who could do that in the flesh for us. That passage describes our futility in pleasing God. Like Adam and Eve, we find ourselves naked before God, hiding in the bushes to avoid him. Yet God in his mercy promises to reconcile us to himself. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Again, I want to remind you that we're looking at the promises, the 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 providence and the purpose of the genealogy of Christmas of, as we look at the genealogy of Matthew and obviously the rest of scripture. And we need to see that the purposes of Christmas is that God sent his son in the flesh in order to pay for our sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, this mercy is wonderfully depicted in the testimony of the apostle Paul who writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There's the purpose of why Christ came. Paul goes on to say, which I'm the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ may display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only true God, to be honored, glory, and forever. Amen. You may want to underline the line that Jesus came in the world to save sinners, but also to the king of ages. That's a wonderful way to close your prayer especially in family worship and just time together. 
In Paul's letter to Romans, he would cry out, wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? His answer is found in the birth of Christ who comes to save his people from their sin. That third purpose is that God grants us grace by making us one, making us one people. The genealogy demonstrates that God's faithfulness by coming in the flesh so that he may rescue sinners. By granting salvation to sinners, God also broke down the barriers of the male, female, Jew, Gentile, etc. All those things that seem to divide us, break us into different tribes and things of that nature. The promise to Abraham that his children would be a blessing to the nation is fulfilled in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes in Ephesians that, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ because we were not Jews. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and we were strangers to the covenants, the promises that God gave to those people. We were having no hope and we were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's through the blood of Christ that you and I are now brought near. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws and commandments and the ordinances that might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. Again, he writes how Jesus' incarnation was a mystery. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of, of, the, of, of the promises, the providence, and the purposes of Christ through the gospel. In other words, just like the Gentile women were included in the lineage of Jesus and reaped the blessings of Abraham, you and I now reap the blessings of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 15, and Genesis 22. We do not have to convert to Judaism or burden ourselves with the rituals of the law, but just embrace the work of Jesus on our behalf. That's what God has called us to. We live in a day now where all we talk about is race. Again, we've talked about this before. There is no such thing as different races. There is one race. We all come from Adam and Eve. We're all relatives in some sense. We have different ethnicities. We have different cultures. We have different customs, different traditions. But, but God is breaking all that down. He is gathering his people in one body. Amen? This here is, an express, or is way, one way we express that. But the universal church, when we all get together, when we are truly with God, we will be of one tongue, praising his name, one body, no longer being separated by all those things that separate us. That's one reason this is a side note. Didn't have this in my notes, so this is going to get me in trouble. But I think this is one word that I'm just struggling with, this individual expressionism today, in today's world, and this identity politics and identity culture. Because we're separating that which Christ has already been crucified for. We are one people 
to those of us who are called, who are brought to Christ. And we're to be bringing other people into our family. We're all adopted by God. In other words, just like the Gentile women, we're included in the lineage of Jesus. Now, many times people just skip over the genealogies. I've done it. I'm guilty of that. Or we read through them quickly. You know, we, we don't even really read their names or try to pronounce them. We just say, A and B, 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 you know, we do that kind of thing. However, in the genealogies, we find the mercy and grace of God as he works through human history to accomplish his promises, his providence, and his purposes. We find that he works through great people with extraordinary faith, but he also works through ordinary people with weak faith. He is served by faithful and obedient servants, but he also subjugates the evil devices of the wicked to accomplish his purposes. He does all this so that he might rescue the sinners and adopt them into his own family as his own children. Ready to lavish his rich mercies and blessings upon him. Let us not forget that as we go through this Christmas season. One of my favorite pastors that I follow on Twitter, and I encourage you to do as well, Dustin Benge, B-E-N-G-E. He writes that the incarnation teaches us these seven things. You'll see him here, that God is not a distant ruler. He is involved in the human affairs. He is involved in your life personally. It's God who takes the initiative. It's not us that follow after God and search for him. It's God himself who comes and brings us to himself. God has an eternal plan. I don't care who's running for president in 2024. I don't care who's Speaker of the House uh, when it comes to January. In the end, God has an eternal plan, and it cannot and will not be derailed in any form or fashion. God reveals himself in Christ, how much he loves us. He's an example of what God, how God wants us to live our lives and how God responds to us. He provides a way to himself. In other words, he doesn't put up barriers and say, you've got to jump over this. You know, the Christian life sometimes might seem like American ninja, but that's not what God is doing, right? It's like spiritual ninja. I've got to do this, I've got to do that. But you know, he, he, these are ways in which he, he's testing us and draws to himself, but he still provides a way. Number six, God demonstrates his love to us. We talked about that this morning earlier, that while we were set sinners, then God loves to rescue the sinners. That's why he's here. He's looking to save his children as the prodigal father, or the father of the prodigal son, excuse me, is at the end of the road looking for his son's return. So is the father for us. What a wonderful Christmas truth. John MacArthur looking at the next thing here. He writes that Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. He himself said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He came to live among sinful men. He experienced what we experienced. He was tempted in every way we are tempted, yet he was completely without sin. Nevertheless, he took on himself the punishment for our sins. And that's the grace of God. He goes on to write how devastating this genealogy is when we see it for what God intended it to be. It strikes at a blow in the future of legalism, self-righteousness, and human religion. It underscores the truth that Jesus identified with sinners. It puts a holy spotlight on God's grace. He goes on to say, you may skip genealogy when you read the Christianity story out loud, but don't overlook its message of grace, which after all is the heart of the Christmas story. God in his mercy is doing something for sinners that they cannot do for themselves. 
And that's why he came, to save his people from their sins. Going back to the genealogy of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promises, the providence, and the purpose of Christ, or purposes of God, are found in this season. I'd like for you to just take a moment. And here's the thing I want you to understand. God wants you to understand that he is sovereign over all things, including who gives birth to whom and works through his providence to accomplish his purpose of salvation. God wants you to believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully human and was accepted as our perfect substitute, willingly dying for us that we may live. And he lived a perfect life to attain the righteousness that we needed to stand before a holy God. This is a righteousness that we cannot attain on our own. God wants you to desire reconciliation with him above all things. He wants you to desire his beauty, his love, and his promise. God wants you to repent of your dead works, recognizing that you can never please God on your own. He wants you to trust him that he has accepted the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. He wants you to follow him by living in obedience to his word. As those Jewish unbelievers opened up the gospel of Matthew and began with the genealogy of Christ, they were opened up to the promises, the providence, and the purposes of God. Something that they were not expecting. Yet in that gospel, they found the truth and they found eternal life. May you do so as well. Let me ask if every head bowed, head bowed, head bowed, eyes closed. Ask the worship team to come up. I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider Matthew's genealogy there. Maybe go home and read it with your family or read it today. And maybe read it anew. Take a moment to pray. Because even in your genealogy, God is working. God has a promise. God has a providence in your life. He has a purpose for you. And would you respond? And maybe one of the ways that God wants you to understand or what God wants you to believe or what God wants you to desire or what God wants you to repent. And may you move and respond to the Holy Spirit as he called you to this morning. Benny, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever-present in your life.